Yasas. Welcome to Greek Like Me, the podcast about all things Greek for Greeks, Hellenophiles, and anybody who's interested in learning about other cultures. I'm your host, Pamela Doherty's Wood. Email us at stealthgreek at gmail.com to share comments, questions, and stories about Greeks, Greekness, or your own ethnic background. First, we'd like to recognize Canada's commemoration on December 5th of the Halifax disaster of 1917. Memory eternal. We're on a holiday slowdown, posting episodes infrequently in December and January while we gear up for 2024. Today's episode is dropping on December 6th, the feast day of St. Nicholas, a much-beloved saint of Greek people. Happy name day to all of the Nicholases, Nikos, Nikolas, and anyone else named for St. Nicholas, including my brother, and our church, Saints Nicholas, Constantine, and Helen in Roseland, New Jersey. Chronopola. It's that time of year. Everybody's thinking about St. Nick. But the image common in the secular world is pretty different than the St. Nicholas venerated in the Christian world, especially the Orthodox Christian world. In the latter two, there's an acknowledgement that the original 4th century Greek St. Nicolaus inspired Santa Claus, Father Christmas, Père Noël, Santa Claus, and many other manifestations of the red-suited jolly gift giver. But Santa is not the subject of this episode. I admit my brother, sister, and I were brought up on Santa Claus, that Christmas time representative of goodwill towards others, especially children and merchants. Both of our parents were born in the U.S. after all. I know my mother never had a visit from Santa in her Greek household growing up, but my dad did. As kids, I don't remember really connecting Santa Claus to his early Christian godfather from Anatolia. St. Nicholas stands apart for the Orthodox, and we know the Catholic Church, especially in Italy, the Anglican Church, the Lutheran Church, and others also celebrate St. Nicholas on December 6th, but we'll be discussing him mostly from the Greek Orthodox perspective. Of course, he was Greek, like me. We'll talk about who he was, where he came from, and some of the miracles and stories that have come to be associated with him. Greeks call him St. Nicholas the Wonder Worker. Is that what they call him in other denominations? I'm not sure. We call him that for the many miracles and good acts he performed throughout his life and beyond. But a caution to any children listening, there are a few violent and downright creepy stories that made their way into medieval writings in Western Europe about the saint. St. Nicholas is the patron saint of the poor, children, young brides, sailors, prisoners, grain merchants, and in some traditions, the patron of butchers, barrel makers, prostitutes, archers, penitent thieves, brewers, and pawnbrokers. Some of the stories we're going to share will show how he came to be seen as patron to many of these people. In Greece, he's also known as the patron saint of fishermen, ships, islands, and harbors. Major Arthur de Blay, in his book, How to Distinguish the Saints in Art, so St. Nicholas is the saint of the common people, the protector of the weak against the strong, the poor against the rich, and the guardian of all children. The archaeologist.org calls him a representative embodiment of the ancient Greek tradition, the humanitarian ideal of Hellenism in combination with Christian humanism met in the holy face of Nicholas were applied and became a religious practice. The oldest cited biography of St. Nicholas was written in the 9th century, close to 500 years after his death, by Michael the Archimandriti. And Archimandriti is a celibate priest who's been elevated to a level just below bishop. Sometimes they had monasteries. 
Our previous priest before Father George was Father Serifim in Archimandriti. SaintNicholasCenter.org, which is a really interesting website to visit, has an English translation of the Archimandriti's bio of Nicholas on its website. And it was interesting to compare what the Archimandriti has said with legends reported elsewhere. Nicholas was mentioned in sermons and letters and by word of mouth over the 500 years before the Archimandriti wrote his biography. Much of the life and legend of St. Nicholas was oral history. Few people beyond the priests or city administrators could read or write. This is, of course, how the Gospels came to the early Christians and how the Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer came down through generations. Oral tradition was strong in that region and strong in the growing religion Christianity. Nicholas was born in the year 270 in Patara, an important port city on the southwestern coast of the Aegean in what is now Turkey. Over 1,700 years ago, his parents were Theophanes and Ioane. Sometimes her name is reported as Nona, which is weird because that's Italian for grandma. I don't know where that came from. Michael doesn't mention names at all, the Archimandriti, but the family was no, well known in Patara, so we won't discount that their names might have been passed down through the generations. It's nice to have names. So, Theophanes and Ioane. They were very rich, very pious, and Nicolaus was their only child. Some sources say he was a baby long prayed for by childless parents who then dedicated his life to God. The Archimandriti says he appeared early in the marriage, and then his parents were not able to have any more children. In either case, like many early religious Christians, they raised him accordingly. One source claims his once sickly mother was immediately healed upon his birth. Legend says on the day of his birth, Nicholas stood up in his bath, or in some cases, the baptismal font, to show honor to God. The Archimandriti, who is obviously an ardent follower of the saint, never mentions this, and it, it is kind of creepy. But apparently it showed up in the literature about St. Nicholas sometime later. But one tale of his early years appears in every source, including the Archimandritis, that the infant Nicholas nursed only once a day on Wednesdays and Fridays, and that was after his parents had completed evening prayers. Wednesday and Friday are still very strict fast days in the Orthodox Church, if you're following it. So this story would emphasize the piety of this child from his birth, or maybe the piety of his mother, who chose not to feed him until after prayers. There was a strong desire to present evidence of many of the saints' worthiness in their childhood. But that may not have been necessary for Nicholas. It was well known in Patara that Nicholas preferred church to a lot of other childhood activities. And that is something that would stand out, be remembered and talked about, especially years later when he became a priest and then a bishop. I can imagine the older folks, or maybe the other kids, telling everyone, Oh yeah, we knew when he was a kid he was going to be a priest. He was a model student, very well behaved, unlike one of my other favorite saints, who was a one-time bandit. We'll talk about St. Moses another day. As he grew up, Nicholas was well known as a generous man with great sympathy for children and the poor. When he was still a young man, his parents died. The Archimandriti says Nicholas's parents went to the Lord. No word on why. Catholic.org claims they died in a plague, but that may be the medieval fans of St. Nicholas projecting. He became extremely popular in Europe in the Middle Ages. At any rate, he inherited a great deal of wealth and he shared it generously, stepping in wherever he saw a need. The most famous story of Nicholas's generosity involves a former nobleman 
and his three young daughters who had fallen on hard times. Nicholas heard about the family situation and learned that the man planned to sell off the three daughters to survive. What? Some sources come right out and say he was going to send them out as streetwalkers. The Archimandriti writes, he had three daughters who were both shapely and very attractive to the eye, and he was willing to station them in a brothel so that he might thereby acquire the necessities of life for himself and his household. Uh, I have no words like sell your big old house, maybe? Let the servants go? Disturbing. Apparently, he couldn't marry them off. Quoting the Archimandriti again, for no man among the lordly or powerful deigned to marry them lawfully, even among the lower classes. Because there was no dowry. So Nicholas wrapped gold coins into a cloth and during the night threw it into the old man's window. The next day, the man found a good husband for his eldest daughter using the gold as dowry. Now he only had two daughters to sell. The next night, Nicholas tossed another sack of gold to the old man's window and the second daughter had a dowry and made a good match. On the third night, the money came through the window for the youngest daughter, and the old man was waiting and chased Nicholas until he could stop and thank him. Later renditions of the story claim Nicholas dropped the packages of money into the girl's stockings. But I would guess, number one, throwing things into ladies' stockings back then would be a no-no. A celibate, pious man like Nicholas shouldn't have known anything about women's undergarments. Anyway, according to the history of hosiery, there was no such thing as stockings at that time, except maybe the Egyptians starting just around the time of St. Nicholas's birth. So, doubtful. Seems like it's only the neat tie-in to the jolly old dude of modern times. In his icon, St. Nicholas is often shown with three orbs of gold representing his three gifts to the nobleman, sometimes sitting on an open Bible. These three orbs are assumed by some to be the reason for the three orbs used to designate a pawnbroker's establishment. So there's that tie-in. Nicholas established a tradition of caring for the poor and sharing what we have with others. That is considered one of the foundations of Christianity if you're doing it right. It's believed the custom of Christmas gift-giving was partly based on Nicholas's gift to the three daughters of the poor nobleman. In mining towns in northern England, there was a tradition of collecting money from every household to be distributed in what they called maiden purses on Christmas Eve. The purses of money were tossed through the windows of young women of marrying age, just as St. Nicholas had done. That's amazing. The whole town coming together to help the young marrieds get a start in life. St. Nicholas would be proud. George H. McKnight reports in his book on St. Nicholas that during the 12th century, spinsters prayed to St. Nicholas to find them decent husbands. Hey, after all, he did it back in the 3rd century. In the 16th century, there was a mass on St. Nicholas Day in Rome during which children were given gifts. McKnight doesn't say if it was the poor or any child who received these gifts, but it's a nice custom. I found several sources on Nicholas's uncle, who is Bishop Nicholas of Batara, and obviously took great interest in his nephew's religious upbringing. It was he who tonsured Nicholas as a reader. Tonsuring was shaving the head or clipping the hair of someone who would become a reader of the epistles or serve in the church in other ways. It's a sign of humility. The Catholic Church hasn't done this in over 50 years, but the Orthodox still do. 
Almost 20 years ago, Douglas John and the other altar boys in our church were tantrum by a bishop. A little clip of hair, a prayer, some awesome chanting, and it was done. The only time I've seen this religious procedure, and it was, it was actually very touching. Later, Bishop Nicholas of Patara ordained his nephew, who became his assistant, and eventually was put in charge of ministering to the bishop's parishioners while he was away. When Nicholas was given permission by Uncle Bishop Nicholas to go on a pilgrimage, he visited the Holy Land and spent some time in Alexandria, which was a great seat of learning. We don't have many details about this time. At least I haven't found any. It must have taken months, possibly a few years, to go on this pilgrimage. But his return trip, that's when the really interesting stories begin to appear. Most of these are repeated by multiple sources, including the Archimandriti and those earlier sermons and letters of other priests and bishops. Nicholas is on his way home. The Bishop of Mira has just died. Mira was a city not far from Nicholas's birthplace, Batara. A group of priests were gathered in the church there to choose a new bishop. The story goes a dream or an inner voice told one of the senior priests that they must choose the first person to approach the church whose name was Nicholas. Akimendriti says, Go to the house of God at night and stand at the entrance, and whoever comes to enter the church quietly before anyone else, take this man and appoint him to the office of bishop. His name is Nicholas. Nicholas happened to be heading to the church to pray anyway, and when he entered, the priest questioned him. Satisfied he was a worthy man, they gave him the office of bishop. He was still a young man, and some say he's still the youngest man ever to be made bishop. Nicholas and his deeds became famous as he continued to help the poor, help the outsiders, and continued to preach God's love. Mira, like Patara, was a port city. One miracle has a shipload of sailors heading into a terrible storm. Winds, high seas, ship pitching all over the place. Things were so bad, the sailors had almost resigned themselves to their deaths. They got on their knees to pray to Bishop Nicholas to save them. According to these sailors, Nicholas appeared on the deck of the ship and helped them handle the ropes and tackle. And finally, he steers the ship. He calms the waters, sees the ship safely into port, and disappears. After disembarking, the sailors are directed to St. Nicholas's church, and even though he's dressed simply, like the rest of the clergy there, without his special vestments, the sailors recognize him and thank him for saving them. There followed other stories of St. Nicholas saving ships at sea, especially in Greece. One of them I found on the Orthodox Church of America site, which went back to Nicholas's return from his pilgrimage. He predicted a storm would endanger the ship he planned to travel on. He went aboard anyway and saw the devil get on board with plans to sink the ship. After they get out to sea, the predicted storm comes, threatening the ship and sending a sailor from a mast, crashing to his death on the deck. Nicholas calms the seas and resuscitates the sailor. GoWork.org, the website for the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America, describes a ship battered by a storm until St. Nicholas appears at the helm and brings the ship safely into port. The legend says passengers who had fallen off of the ship into the water called on Nicholas to save them and suddenly appeared in their own homes surrounded by their families who were pretty surprised to see them. 
I love this. The saint appearing at the helm to guide the ship to port while plucking drowning passengers out of the sea and dropping them safely into their homes. The Archdiocese also shares a miracle with St. Nicholas both saves the ship and defeats the devil. This takes place after what we Greeks would call the falling asleep of Nicholas. The devil was irritated by all of the attention paid to St. Nicholas by the pilgrims visiting his tomb. The envious devil takes the shape of an impoverished old woman and approaches pilgrims boarding a ship to take them to Myra to visit the church of St. Nicholas and pray before his tomb. The pilgrims are bringing oil for the lamps of the church. Greek Orthodox churches and homes have always used olive oil to light the candeli, the lamps, in front of the icons. Traditionally, these lamps would be lit around the clock. And the oil, which was extremely expensive back then, would need to be replenished regularly. So one way to show love and respect for a saint would be to gift a bottle of oil to the church. The pilgrims are carrying flasks or whatever containers of oil they have onto the ship, and the devil in old lady's clothing begs them to take her container of oil to St. Nicholas Church because she's too sickly to make the journey. They do the Christian thing, take the oil from her promising to bring it with them to the church. But after the ship gets out to sea, Nicholas appears in front of the captain and tells him to throw the old lady's offering of oil overboard. The captain does as St. Nicholas says, and after the oil is thrown into the sea, the water catches fire. Save the day. After these stories spread throughout Asia Minor, Greece, and beyond, Nicholas was both in life and after death often called on sailors for help during a storm or to help them to be safe or to help them to succeed in whatever they were doing. During the Greek Revolution in the early 19th century, the sailors fighting against Turkish domination on the seas often prayed to St. Nicholas to keep them safe or to grant them victory. McKnight sights the ships in a port on the eastern coast of Santorini, sending a sailor to the local church to ask St. Nicholas for support before going into battle. McKnight also reports a sailor strike in the port of Piraeus shortly before his book was published in 1917. The sailors had sworn by St. Nicholas that they would never yield to the ship owners. But as negotiations went on, it looked like an acceptable compromise was being offered by management, but the sailors couldn't agree to it because it would break their oath, their tama to the saint. Finally, management brought in the archbishop, who was able to release the sailors from their oath so they could get back to work. I love this. You do not take an oath to a saint lightly. Well, everyone seems to today, but Greeks still take this seriously. You can't expect a saint's attention if you will lie to get it. Don't say it if you don't mean it. And I love it even more that Greek pirates would get half of their loot to the churches of St. Nicholas in return for their safety while they were pirating about. They prayed to St. Nicholas, successfully relieved a few ships of their cargo, and they do the right thing, giving a gift of thanks to charity. Honestly, I don't think St. Nicholas would approve, but you got to give credit to the faith of the pirates that St. Nicholas would come through for them. Greek ships have for centuries carried an icon of St. Nicholas on board, whether they're military ships, merchant ships, or fishing boats. Traditionally, the ships keep an ever-burning lamp lit in front of the icon, just as you would in churches. And in St. Nicholas's churches and chapels, you might find models of boats, coils of cable, or anchors given as offerings. In many of the shops in Greece selling religious items, you can purchase votives, which might look to non-Greeks like ornamental metal shaped like or embossed with 
a ship or an anchor, an arm or a leg, or whatever the pilgrim is praying for help with. A votive is anything used to make or fulfill a sacred vow. In Orthodox churches in Greece, metal votives hang on wires strung overhead. St. Nicholas has had such a presence as a patron of ships, Greek sailors would wish each other good voyage by saying, May St. Nicholas hold the tiller. I wonder if they still say this. Does anyone know a Greek fisherman or sponge diver or sailor? Do they still say this? My favorite St. Nicholas icon has a masted ship painted in next to him. One wall of our church in Roseland has iconography showing Nicholas rescuing a ship at sea and the sailors who have fallen overboard that he's reaching out to rescue. We'll post some photos to our website sources page. The Archimandriti describes one of the greatest miracles attributed to St. Nicholas. Prompted by the famine of Mira and the surrounding region, the people were starving, and Nicholas did not differentiate between his parishioners and the largely pagan population of the city. He'd heard that ships of, full of grain, bound for Alexandria in Egypt, had stopped in a nearby port. Martin Harrison, in his book Mountain and Plain from the Lycian Coast to the Phrygian Plateau in late Roman and early Byzantium period, says, Mira was a regular stopping point for such ships. There are well-preserved remains of an imperial granary at its port of Andriaki, which was the same port cited in the legend by Archimandriti. Nicholas approached the captain of every ship carrying grain and begged each one for 100 measures of grain. I tried calculating Roman measures into metric and then into American measurements, but let's not go down that rabbit hole. There must have been a lot of ships. Each captain refused at first. They knew in Alexandria every bit of grain that they delivered would be weighed, and even the smallest amount missing would mean punishment. Nicholas promised the missing grain would replenish. They finally gave in. He took the grain, averted the crisis. When the nervous captains arrived in Alexandria, they found the grain shipments to be exactly correct, and some say many of the sailors immediately converted. I absolutely believe Nicholas would beg grain off of every ship he could, and I believe he could move people with his prayers for help for the needy. Another one of the most famous miracles of St. Nicholas was the rescue of three officers of Emperor Constantine's army who were wrongly accused of treason and sentenced to death. The soldiers were kept in a tower, awaiting execution, and prayed to St. Nicholas for mercy. Nicholas appeared that night before both the accuser, who was a member of Constantine's court, and before the emperor himself. He demanded the release of the three officers, and Constantine complied. According to Gorg.org, the three officers became monks out of gratitude. During the Middle Ages, the story of the three officers became muddled into an entirely different story. Scholars believe crude medieval illustrations of the three officers emerging through the open top of the tower they were imprisoned in was misunderstood by some to be three little boys popping out of a pickle barrel. I'm thinking England or Germany maybe because pickle barrel. The story that evolved around this misinterpretation of the painting was that an innkeeper who ran out of meat or didn't have money for meat killed three little boys and cut them up into a pickle barrel and served them to his customers. Very imaginative. St. Nicholas, who was traveling who knows where, stopped by for some refreshment, immediately recognized what the innkeeper was trying to feed him. He immediately revived 
and reconstituted the three boys. This sounds like a German fairy tale to me. It's just weird. There were other variations of the unjustly accused soldiers, though. There's a story of Nicholas being visited by three princes who have been sent to subdue the area, something about somebody rebelling against the emperor. The princes were dining with Nicholas when he became aware, I don't know how, of three knights falsely accused by a corrupt consul and about to be beheaded. Already we're warned this is a medieval version of the story because knights. Nicholas asks the princes to go with him. He enters the room where the praying knights are about to lose their heads and wrest the sword away from the executioner and freeze the knights. Then he goes to the consul's house, flings open the locked doors, and gives him a tongue lashing. In the Middle Ages in Western Europe, Nicholas seems to have morphed into a tough dude with more action sequences instead of the peaceful, prayerful, helpful saint. And occasionally, it's disturbing. The three princes return with Nicholas, subdue the rebellion without violence. Then they are accused of treason, sentenced to death, and Nicholas appears as a dream to Constantine, demanding their release. There are some tales that again come out later about Nicholas rampaging against pagan temples, completely destroying them and their idols. I found this only in a couple of places, and I don't buy it. It sounds very unchristlike and kind of shiitake. Back then, Christians were known for their message of peace and love, and St. Nicholas was the epitome of that message. It's also ridiculously unlikely. Christianity was still a minority religion, a religion that was actively persecuted by the Emperor Diocletian during Nicholas's time as Bishop of Myra. And here we veer away from embellished stories back into history. Diocletian was motivated by powerful Romans who wanted to stamp out a weird little cult that refused to worship the gods of Rome, and also messed with his desire for unity in the empire. Part of this had to do with emperor worship. Each emperor in his time was declared a god. If any of the troops fell under the sway of one god, they would no longer blindly follow the emperor. He needed them all to be united in praying for the Roman gods and praying for him. There were also some really rabidly anti-Christian members of his administration, pushing to put an end to the upstart Christians. Diocletian issued four edicts altogether, initially promising no bloodshed against the Christians, but that's not the way it went. The first edict in the year 303 ordered the destruction of Christian churches and scriptures. Gatherings of the faithful were prohibited, and Christians were deprived of their civil rights, such as in the courts. And this is where we really see persecution of Christians. Not this American-made nonsense about being persecuted because their kids' school want to include a menorah in holiday celebrations, or not making Christian prayer in public schools mandatory. Please. These people suffered for their faith, not their pride. Edicts 2 and 3 called for the imprisonment of all Christian clerics. If a cleric offered a sacrifice to the Roman gods, he would be freed. Those refusing would be tortured and executed, and many did refuse. The fourth edict took it even further, ordering death to all Christians, regardless of age, gender, social status, their status in the church, if they refuse to offer sacrifices to the Roman gods. That's it. Done. So sit down, Karen. Nobody's telling you to die for your faith. Many Christians at the time were tortured, imprisoned, and executed. St. Nicholas was imprisoned and tortured. The Orthodox Church of America states he comforted his fellow prisoners. 
Diocletian died in 305. Nicholas and the other Christians were released from prison, probably when Constantine became emperor in 306. Constantine was not a Christian himself until later on, but his mother, Helen, was. Christianity was not made the official religion of the state until after 313. And contrary to popular belief, Constantine did not persecute pagan religions. That came much later with different emperors. So even if some of the Christian priests might have gotten uppity about having a backer on the throne, that didn't translate into destruction of temples dedicated to the Roman gods. It wouldn't have been tolerated. St. Nicholas died in 343. So, nope. Nicholas was widely reported to have been an attendee of the Council of Nicaea in 325. Some sources say his name is not included on the list of signatories. Other sources say his name is mentioned, and others claim peers identified him as being present. The book, The Life of St. Nicholas, states, Tradition says not only that he was present in his old age at the Council of Nicaea, but pictures him as the foremost opponent of Arius. I believe it. It was a gathering of bishops from all over Christendom to discuss conflict and church dogma. He was bishop of an important city. It would make sense. He was praised for his passion in arguing for the divinity of the Holy Trinity. What doesn't make sense is the claim that he became so enraged at Arius, later named a heretic for his differing beliefs, that he punched him out. Why do I think later macho church leaders felt the necessity to get violent whenever someone disagreed with them? Not St. Nick's M.O. He would argue with love, not violence. Don't buy it. So whoever is teaching this needs to go back and read the Gospels again, which St. Nicholas did on the daily and followed to the letter. Nicholas passed away on December 6, 343. Less than 200 years later, Emperor Theodosius II ordered the St. Nicholas Church to be built on the site of the church Nicholas had served. It doesn't say what happened to the original church. Do we assume it was destroyed during the years of persecution? Quite possibly. His remains were moved to a marble tomb there in the new church, and soon it was reported that his sweet-smelling oil, believed to have healing powers, flowed from the tomb. The church became one of the most popular sites of pilgrimage in the Christian world, and an even more important city than it already had been. Biblicalarchaeology.org says Nicholas shaped the development of the city of Myra, which became for a time the capital of Byzantium in the era of Theodosius II. Quote, for over 1,500 years, the Church of St. Nicholas has stood out as an icon of the Christian saint's influence in an area marked by the monumental remains of the earlier Greco-Roman Lycian populace. Miracles continued to be attributed to him after his death. His legend traveled through Western Europe, where he became a popular figure in the Middle Ages, as we've said. And his legend grew. McKnight retells a story published in a medieval book called The Golden Legend. There's a pious man who kept the feast day of St. Nicholas faithfully every year. One year, he and his young schoolboy son prepared the feast and invited the child's classmates. The devil comes to the gate disguised as a pilgrim begging for alms. The devil really had a problem with people venerating St. Nicholas. The father asks his son to fetch money to give to the poor in proper St. Nicholas fashion. The devil follows the boy into the house and strangles him. Medieval religious stories are the most gruesome. Remember the kids in the pickle barrel? The devastated father carries the child's body to his room and calls out to St. Nicholas, who he has celebrated and prayed to for many years. And the child wakes up.
During the late Middle Ages, according to Catholic.org, there were nearly 400 churches dedicated to St. Nicholas in just England. 19th century religious writer Mrs. Anna Jameson wrote, No saint in the calendar has so many churches, chapels, and altars dedicated to him. Catholic.org says he was the most frequently portrayed saint of Christian artists at the time, with the exception of the Mother of God. And centuries later, Cardinal Ratzinger, who would become Pope Benedict, said of Nicholas, he was one of the first people to be venerated as a saint without having been a martyr. He was an early saint long before the canonization process was put in place in the 9th century. The process before that was to become a saint by acclamation or unanimous consent of the people. And I like that. Anything run by church, hierarchy is too often seen as being political. But if the people have spoken, that's pretty cool. Sometime in the 9th century, Mita fell in a siege by an Islamic army, but was retaken by the Byzantine Empire. On May 9th, 1087, grave robbers from Italy swiped the remains of St. Nicholas and carried him away to bury Italy, supposedly leaving a few bits behind out of fear that the saint would punish them. The grave robbers were Italian sailors and merchants who strong-armed the monks who cared for St. Nicholas's remains. The argument given in hindsight was that St. Nicholas was at risk because of Mita's recent fall to outside forces. And to be fair, Mita fell again 30 years after the grave robbing. The Orthodox Church refers to this as the transfer of the remains to Barry, but since it was a scant 33 years after the Great Schism, the separation of the Eastern and Western churches, call me jaded. And if it was a transfer, why are there so many histories relating to how the monks in charge of the tomb tried to fight them off? And why were the grave robbers so afraid of St. Nicholas retaliating against them? Adam English, a theologian at Campbell University in North Carolina, told National Geographic, it was essentially a holy robbery. They feared not only the locals coming after them, but also the bones and the power of St. Nicholas. This is apparently why they left some bits behind, which many of which were presumably swiped by Venetians later on. Literally, no respect for the Eastern Church. There's also a fair amount of evidence, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, that the kidnapping of the saints' remains had something to do with strengthening Barry's prominence on a global scale, and it worked. The Church of St. Nicholas in Body became the destination of pilgrims seeking to pray to St. Nicholas and receive some of the healing oil produced by his relics. There are two feast days of St. Nicholas in Italy, December 6th and May 9th, the second one commemorating the installation of his relics in Bari, many miles from his hometown and where he practiced his faith and his early miracles. Again, to be fair, the original church of St. Nicholas in Mira was sacked, abandoned, and rebuilt as first Persians and later Ottomans occupied the area. I'm glad he's safe. Relics were shared, and teeth and finger bones are scattered across Greece, Russia, France, and the Palestinian territories, where, yes, there are Christians. Most of the sharing probably occurred before the grave robbing, since that was the custom. As squeamish as this may make some, Orthodox churches still install holy relics, meaning parts of the skeletons of saints in their churches. Hey, it's what we do. Maybe we need to do an episode on that. And many will say, we're crazy for even thinking any of those old bones could actually belong to these holy people. But in a 2017 Oxford University radio's carbon study, scholars examined bones they borrowed from a church 
that were believed to belong to St. Nicholas, and they found they dated to the time of the saint's death. Professor Hyam, who was part of the study, said, many relics that we study turn out to date to a period somewhat later than the historic attestation would suggest. This bone fragment, in contrast, suggests that we could possibly be looking at the remains from St. Nicholas himself. We'll post the article from the Oxford University website on our sources page at stealthgreek.com and link it in the podcast notes. Churches dedicated to St. Nicholas are scattered throughout the Christian world. One of the most famous was a humble little church destroyed in the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center. It took many years to rebuild and is now a gorgeous marble shrine to the saint. Douglas John has taken a number of photos there, and we'll share some of those on our sources page, too. Particularly striking is an icon of the Theotokos, the mother of God, spreading her arms out to embrace and protect Manhattan. I cried the first time I saw it, and I didn't even see it in person. The church is very close to the 9-11 memorial and welcomes visitors to come in and have a peaceful moment. There is a 20th century St. Nicholas miracle cited by McKnight at the Monastery of St. Nicholas in Spata, S-P-A-T-A, Spata, not Sparta, in Attica. There's an annual festival on May 10th, the day after the anniversary of the grave robbing, to celebrate the restoration of a holy icon. In the early 19th century, shepherds found an icon of St. Nicholas in the nearby forest. Many churches were destroyed during the Ottoman occupation, and occasionally remnants are found in odd places. A chapel was built there to St. Nicholas, and then a larger church in 1875. In 1909, McKnight reports a man named John Doulos brought his young daughter, Kiriakula, to pray for her healing. She had been blinded the previous Easter, claiming she'd seen a terrible fire, and no doctor could help her. They spent two days and two nights before the feast inside the church on their knees, praying. At dawn on the day of the feast, as crowds of pilgrims approached the church for morning liturgy, the child shouted that she could see. McKnight says the story of St. Nicholas consists almost entirely of a series of beneficent deeds, of aid afforded humanity in distress, accomplished during his lifetime or through intervention after his death. He says, the fact that these stories existed in the belief of people served to influence human action, leading to imitation which eventually crystallized into some of the noblest of popular customs. And maybe that's the biggest miracle, that a man through kindness and empathy and acts of love could inspire generations of people over 1,700 years to do the same. The gifts for the children in Rome, the myriad toy drives for poor children at this time of year, holiday meals for the homeless soup kitchens, Christmas donations collected by Salvation Army Santas, Habitat for Humanity. Few have not felt the impact of St. Nicholas in one way or the other. And to me, connecting with the original, humble, selfless, compassionate, peaceful priest and bishop magnifies and enhances the meaning of the season and reminds me in this violent, self-centered, consumer-driven world what kind of person I want to be inspired by. Thanks for listening. Greek Like Me is a South Greek production. This episode was researched, written, and narrated by me, your host, Pamela Deodis-Wood. Our producer, photographer, and post-production editor is Douglas John. Visit our website at stealthgreek.com for resources, photos, links, and more. 
please rate, like, and subscribe. It helps us to get noticed so we can keep making content about Greeks and Greek culture. Find Greek Like Me on Facebook or on Instagram at Greek Like Me. See you next time. Yasas. Yeah,